so we'll start our session here today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we start right into the text on chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, but, well, anytime you see that word or the therefore or anything like that, you have to look at the preceding verses. What was our main topic last week? Or at least the theme of last week's topic? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Lawlessness. The man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. So if you, if, you, if you have your Bibles open and you look back and you start reading that passage, you know, he's talking about this man of lawlessness who's going to be coming and destroying and it's going to be terrible and horrible and you're talking about the tribulation and all of these issues coming in here. And it doesn't end with a happy note. I mean, verses 11 and 12, so it says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so they may believe what is false, in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, if you're the church in Thessalonica, and you receive this letter, you probably didn't end at the end of verse 12, and then take a break for a week like we have. And why do we do that? I'm curious, is there anybody here who read past verse 12 in the last week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? Probably not, because we ended the class. You know, we're done. And we ended on this really downer note about this Antichrist and oh my goodness, it's all going to be destructive and that's all you think about. You think about Henry Kissinger and, uh, you know, Gorbachev and all these other possible antichrists and and you think but the Thessalonican people kept reading so everything that comes for the rest of the book uh, continues to address the themes that we've had so we have to be careful whenever we're in our Bible studies we can take these small segments, segments, and in New Testament terminology, they're called pericopes. They're like, seg, you know, stories. They're these little segments of scripture, and we separate them as if they are to be separated. Well, we do that just simply for the ease of study. But in actuality, there's a continuing theme here. So, we read about the coming lawless one, of the activity of Satan with all the power and false signs and wonders, and then Paul writes, but we all always ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible statement. I think of this dark, awful prophecy that he's proclaiming of this man of lawlessness. And then he says, but I thank God for you. Now we need to look carefully at this at these two verses, 13 and 14. Um, there's a lot here. In fact, um, 
I'll just give you an idea. In the passage we are trying to study today, verses 13 through the end of chapter 3, John MacArthur had six separate sermons. I did not listen to all six hours. Uh, this is just not physically possible. And then I uh, ha happened to also find uh, a series by John Stott and got to listen to the audio of him teaching on this, which is kind of cool. I also listened to a little bit of Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones. There was a very old recording of some of his comments on this. And a few others, Sinclair Ferguson, probably it's everybody who had an English accent I decided to listen to. Um, it's fascinating the number of different uh, side trails that pastors and teachers will take were in these passages. For example, you look at verse 13 and it says, because God chose you, entire sermons, entire books, entire material was written about what topic? Election. election. It became all about election. And I thought, whoa, that's okay, that's important, but wow. I, I, well, I guess it's a natural thing to discuss here because it does make some statements. It says, because God chose you, and our ESV translates the next phrase differently. He chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Does anybody here have a Bible translation that translates that differently? From the beginning is the footnote. Mm -hmm. The NIV, New American Standard, New King James, and the RSV all translated as He chose you from the beginning. The ESV is the only one that translates it as chose you as the first fruits. So, you know, in my typical rabbit trail way, I decided to go, well, what does that mean? Why is there a difference? Uh, we have to look at the Greek text to get a real good picture of this. Good contrast. What we have here is the Greek word A P A R C H E Aparche. Now, my lovely wife Lisa reminded me because I was a little bewildered by this translation problem that the word arche in the Greek is the word beginning. In John 1.1, it says, in arche halagos, in the beginning was the word. Aparche is merely an emphasis or an emphasized beginning. So it still means beginning, but there are other places with, um, you have the aparche translated as first fruits, usually when they're talking about harvesting something. Because the first thing that's picked is the best thing that's picked. And that means it's very special. And what is the, in the Old Testament, especially in the Septuagint Greek, 
What was supposed to be offered to God is the first fruits. So you had that whole Cain and Abel issue of he offers the first fruits and then one gets jealous and you have all that problem. But everywhere in scripture, you have either the spotless lamb or the first fruits. The first fruits is the best of the crop. We tend to say, well, that means it's also a form of tithing. Okay, that's fine. That's a different um, interpretation than what we have here. But it says, God shows you, God picked you first. Ephesians. Now I'm going to read a couple verses here. Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. 2 Timothy 1 9. By the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, because of his, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the <clears throat> ages began. And then all the way over, Psalm 139. You know this verse. For he formed my inward, inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Now, I gave you page three of the handout, is an entire article that happened to be published this week for the first time. Uh, founded uh, on a, uh, art, a website called the White Horse Inn. If you're not familiar with them, it's a great, great study, Michael Horton and, and that group. This particular author is a pastor in South Africa, so that's why you'll find um, British spellings of words in here, you know, like evangelize with an S instead of a Z, and favor with F-A-V-O-U-R. It's not that he's trying to be pretentious, it's just how he writes. Now, I'm going to read you a couple parts of this, so you don't have to, but I want you to read this this week because it's really well stated. The doctrine of election states that God has sovereignly chosen those who will be saved in Christ. He's done this not because of any goodness or foreseen faith in them, but purely because he loves them. This has to be one of the most misunderstood doctrines of the Christian faith. Many reject it as they think it makes God out to be unjust. Others see it as a violation of our free will. Well, there are those who see it as a secondary issue which risks unnecessary division in the church. And this is a great pity. As this doctrine, correctly understood, should be a source of great comfort and encouragement. Far from making us proud and arrogant, if we truly understand election, we remain humble. We're humbled for we realize that we don't deserve this incredible gift of grace in Christ because we're sinners. 
It's in spite of ourselves that God has chosen to have mercy on us, saving us from this wrath that everyone deserves. Why has he saved us but not others? Is God then unjust? Paul asks the same question in Romans 9.14, and God answers, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He is God and does what he likes, and we will never understand all of his purposes. We can only be eternally thankful to him and humble before him if we've received Christ, that he's chosen to have mercy on us and set his love upon us. That's what Paul's talking about here. He chose us as the first fruits. Why? So we have a when in the beginning. Why has the first fruits to be saved? Well, how? The next passage, or in the next phrase, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 1 Peter 1.8, I'm sorry, 1.18. 1 Peter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. It's quite a message, isn't it? And you know... I'll be honest, this is one of my great weaknesses as your Bible teacher. The first time I read through a passage before I start digging in it, my first reaction is, there's nothing here. I won't have anything to say for an hour. Oh my gosh, this is going to be terrible. Because what do I do like we most of us do? We read quickly and we read the surface. We just let the word just kind of wash over us going, oh yeah, I've heard this before. Yeah, 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 whatever. You know, and then we just move on. This is how we do it. And it's really tragic. Because when you stop and you look at these verses, you go, wait, what is he really talking about here? He's talking about everything. And I just read it went, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, he chose his first fruits, whatever, from the beginning. It's, it's, where's the good stuff, like the Antichrist stuff? Why do we do this to ourselves? We miss the riches that's here. Now, we're going to look at these two verses again, and I want you to look at something else. I'm going to read them, and I'm going to point something out that just boggles the mind. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved in the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he calls you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You find in here 
all of Christian doctrine. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Godhead, the Trinity. You find salvation and election, soteriology. You find the church, the family of God, meaning the brethren, the brothers and sisters in the Lord, and that's ecclesiology. You find spiritual growth, sanctification. You also find future glory, which is eschatology. You got it all in two sentences. Mind blown. Mic drop, we can go home. I mean, seriously, he has in such a short, succinct way shown us what I have. I have a shelf in my office that's four foot wide, six foot tall, and all that's on it is systematic theologies. I'm a collector, I know, it's ridiculous, but you go in and you have all these millions and millions of words written on the Godhead, soteriology, ecclesiology, sanctification, eschatology, all of that, and here Paul does it in what, 25 words? Amazing. John Stock put it this way, in a single sentence, the Apostle's mind sweeps from in the beginning to the glory. There is no room in such a conviction for fears about Christian instability. Let the devil mount his fiercest attack on the feeblest saint. Let the Antichrist be revealed and the rebellion break out. And yet, over against the instability of our circumstances and our characters, we set the stability of the purpose of God. From the beginning to the glory in Christ, the entire sweep of eternity to eternity is found in two verses. God loves you. This is what it says right there. God loves you. You're a part of the family. He chose you. He called you. He sanctified you. And the glory of God will be yours. It's all right there. Amazing. And wonderful. And it's the kind of thing you can come back to and meditate on in your study and in your, in your devotional time as you just simply let these words wash over you as you think about them. But of course, the text goes on. So then, which means it's a further commentary on what has gone before, so then, brothers and sisters, Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, this idea of stand firm, that created a whole other section of sermons and writings and everything else. This, this whole concept of standing firm in the midst of what? What has been one of the themes in all the Thessalonians? 
Hmm? Persecution, difficulties, strife. Paul got kicked out of the town. One of the guys there was put under a government uh, command that if Paul ever showed up, he'd owe them money. I mean, this is, wasn't a light thing that was going on in the Thessalonian church. And if you remember in our study of where Thessalonica was, it's like this heartbeat or a, uh, a city along a long east-west route. Everybody went through Thessalonica if they were crossing from Italy to Greece to Asia Minor. They would move across and then they would move on the way up to Philippi. But Thessalonica was a key city. So you have this persecution going on and he says stand firm. 1 Thessalonians 3.8 he says for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia um, Oops, that's, that's chapter 1, chapter 3, verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. Do not be quickly shaken or alarmed. And here he calls them to stand firm. Obviously, the people there were shaken. They were in turmoil. And he reminds them to stand fast. So I was thinking, of, you know, what is a great way to picture the idea of standing firm in the midst of turmoil? And this incredible picture came back into my mind from when I was about maybe 10, 11 years old. Back in... Uh, well, I think it's probably in the 40s. My dad had been in the Seattle area and was befriended by an elderly couple. Uh, it was more kind of a circumstantial thing. They just kind of were in a meeting area or whatever and they began talking where they were waiting for something and they became fast friends. That elderly couple became our adopted grandparents in the Seattle area. We call, I call them Grandma and Grandpa Flurry. As far as I knew, I had three sets of grandparents. And that was not in the 40s. What? For me? No, I was, that was, no, that was when it started. Um, when my brothers went to college in Seattle, Grandma and Grandpa Flurry were kind of the local family in case any trouble would happen or anything of that nature. And whenever we traveled, from Alaska into the Seattle area. We would always stay with Grandma and Grandpa Flurry and we'd talk with them. Well, when I was, again, when I was young, uh, the Flurries came up to visit us in Alaska. Now there's a great little day trip you can take if you ever happen to go to Alaska and you want to see the wilds, I guess. You drive from Alaska, put your tr car on a train, because you cannot get to this little town by road. You can only get to it by boat. You can't even fly there. A little town called Whittier. Oh, now you can drive. Oh, now you can drive? Did they, they, they put in a road? Well, the tunnel for the rail is shared with traffic now. Oh, okay. Well. But it was... It wasn't that way when I was little. It wasn't that till very recently. 
And then the thing about Whittier is this was a secret base during World War II for the submarines and the, and the shipping area up in the Alaska area. And it was known for being incredibly snowed under in the winter to the point that they would have 60 feet of snow because it's a little tiny cove with mountains like this and so the snow would just come and dump and there's no place for it to go. And there's pictures, if you ever went there, you would see the whiteness and then this kind of this hole in the ground and you walk to the hole and it's stair steps chiseled out of the snow down to the front door of the Quonset huts and the houses and everything else. It's just an amazing little place. So you get off the train, put your car on a ferry and then you take the ferry from Whittier to Valdez. <clears throat> now, part of the trip is you go through these various fjords and you know, a little place you go up to the glaciers and they blow the horn on the, uh, the ship and the, the, the glacier cats. And you see the big ice sheets come off and all the seals and everything else. Well, then you come out of that cove and you're in open water. And they even warned us when we hit the open water, it could get a little rough if there's wind. Well, that day, oh, there was wind. And the boat began doing the whoosh, whoosh. It's a ferry. It's not meant for, you know, big sea waves. And people were throwing up all over the place. I mean, it was awful. Just sickness everywhere. And it was this horrible thing. So my dad says, oh, you got to come see this. And so I'm, I'm a little green in the gills. And we go down there. And in the bottom of the boat is where all the cars are stored. And the cars are doing this on their springs. They're chained. I mean, he goes, isn't this amazing? And I'm like this. And I look up and I go, who is that? On the bow, on the bottom of the boat, is Grandma Flurry. <laughs> and she's standing on the, basically two or three feet from the edge with her feet separated, not holding on to anything, with her hands on her hips. <laughs> <laughs> not moving at all. And I went, what in the world? I mean, my dad and I are holding on and there's Grandma Flurry. And she goes, isn't this fun? This is great. <laughs> What a picture! In the midst of when everyone else is throwing up, everyone else is in distress, everything around you is being turmoiled and tossed and whatever, and God says to us, stand firm like Grandma Flurry. No matter what, and you know, you can survive this. You will survive this. Because God is alongside you in all circumstances and in all ways. Isn't that amazing? Stand firm. And then it says to hold on. So you have a, you're standing firm and you have a solid grip on what? What does it say in the text? Hold on to the traditions. Traditions? No fiddler on the roof, Tom. <laughs> Tradition. 
I didn't even think of that. <laughs> now I have that uh, earworm in my head. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, but Paul's talking about traditions here. Suddenly, what traditions? It's the early church. We don't even have Pope Peter the first yet. I'm being facetious. But I mean, the Catholic Church hasn't been established. There's no traditions. But he says the traditions that you were taught by us. See, in Mark chapter 7, verse 8, Jesus says, let me find it here, You leave the commandment of God and hold on to, tr to the tradition of men. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He is making a distinct separation of the traditions and philosophies and thoughts of men versus the theology and belief of Christ. That's what he means by this. You need to stand firm in persecution, but need to hold on to the, to the traditions, the theology, the belief of what I have been teaching you. He kind of expounds on this a little bit in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3. I'd remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he goes on with a long passage of theology. So even there in 1 Corinthians, you hear the echo of this to something you're holding on to. That is, you're standing fast in this tradition, this belief in Jesus as the Savior. Verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. So two different pastors had a couple things to say about that. Because this is again part of this whole long passage about dealing in the tough times that are present and future. Ray Pritchard says, your doubts are not the end of the story. Your fears are not the end of the story. Your worries are not the end of the story. Your uncertainties are not the end of the story. Your unbelief is not the end of the story. John Piper says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? He's quoting from Psalm 42. And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for He is a God of matchless grace. He elects us by grace. He calls us by grace. He sanctifies by grace. He sustains faith by grace. 
and He will glorify you by grace. You cannot earn it, or deserve it, or merit it. It is free. Believe in it, rest in it, delight in it, and it is yours. So the passage carries on. Chapter 3, verse 1. Verses 1 and 2. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. This is a reminder which we had earlier in another passage to pray for our leaders, the leaders in our church. I even wrote it down here. I said, hmm, we've got Jim, Ron, Julian, AC, and Luke. That's five. One a day, five days a week. Pray for each one of them. Please. We have this idea that the pastoral job is an easy one. I mean, for goodness sake, they get six days off and all they have to do is work on Sunday. We know that's not true. Just one, just one hour. It's just for one hour. What's the big deal? Oh, maybe two if they have to repeat, but it's a repeat. So they practice the first hour and they get the good stuff in the second hour. Hooray for us. Um, I mean, there's this, even growing up, you have this vision of the pastor. He's just walking around shaking people's hands and getting free meals at people's houses all week. And, you know, I mean, this, this idea that this is this great job to have. And I still remember once having a lunch with my dad and this businessman here in Scottsdale. My dad was trying to figure out if there was a way that this fellow would hire me for a summer job. And the fellow said to me, so what are you studying in, in school? I says, well, I'm a Bible major. And he goes, ah, you make good money as a pastor. <laughs> I remember looking at him going, really? I didn't know that. Cool. <laughs> no. That's not why we're doing this. So this past week, I was exchanging notes with an old friend of mine who I used to work for when I was at Bethany House. He was my, my boss. He was the editorial director and I was a senior editor. And we began sharing just some memories of some of the wild and weird book proposals that we got over the years. Um, and I shared with him a recent one that I got from a rabbi, local, rabbi who called my office to pitch his book idea for a New Age Quran. <laughs> so that was interesting. And, you know, some other strange things that have come up over the years. Well, Kevin had left the publishing business to become a pastor in a church. And he, made, he wrote me this comment, because we were talking about not just that guy, but a whole bunch of really strange people. And he said, the thing about pastoring is that you feel spiritually and morally responsible for all of those people. And he stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, oh my goodness. The fringe or the odd or the difficult personalities that make up the body of Christ. Oh, that's none of you, of course. We never would say that about any of you. We're all wonderful. You know what I mean? They're in the body of Christ. And that pastor 
cannot dismiss someone. Should not dismiss someone. That's hard work. That's difficult. And imagine how easy it is for the enemy to say, look, just blow them off. You're tired. You're hungry. You need to go home. That's hard. And we forget that. Because they, oh, he's nice to me, so everything's fine. But he's doing that. That pastor is working with everyone in the church. And he says, may we be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. And he might be talking about the ones in the church who are giving grief to the church itself. But then notice at verse 3, the pronouns change. Verses 1 and 2 are we and us. Verses 3 and following are you and yours. So while he's talking about pray for us, he turns around and says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. What an incredible promise. I mean, at the end of chapter 2, he wrote, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. He's praying that may God establish them in every good work. And yet here, it's not a prayer, it's a statement. So he goes from verse 16 and 17 to the may God establish you to verse 3. He will establish you. This is a promise from God because the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that we are doing and will do the things that we command. I have to look very quickly at the word command. In 1 Thessalonians 5.12, there is a phrase that we ask. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he says we urge. But in 2 Thessalonians 3, 4, 6, 10, and 12, we have this word, Parangelo, which means to give orders, to be very direct, like a general saying, hop to it, get this done. He is commanding them here in throughout the rest of the passage. But then he says, verse 5, another one of these verses that we gloss right over. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. He came across some phrasing in uh, Chuck Swindoll's book on Thessalonians, and I adapted it to write this. Think about that verse again. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Don't gloss over it. If left to our own devices, our dark hearts will generate hatred and evil. In Matthew 15, 19, Jesus said, Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adulteries, fornication, theft, 
false witness, and slander. Jeremiah stated very clearly in chapter 17, verse 9 of Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And here, Paul is praying that the Lord will direct that heart to the love of God. Because when God gets a hold of the heart, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, he writes, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put, and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. And then in Paul in Romans 6, 4 says, in order that we too might walk in newness of life. This is what God is doing for us, in us, and through us. Then we have this long passage, verses 6 through 14, about the idol. Not I-D-O-L, but the I-D-L-E. Of those that are lazy or leading an unruly life or just not working, we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you keep away from any brother, any church family brother, who is walking in idolists and not according to the tradition that you received from us. <clears throat> For you yourselves know how to, you ought to imitate us because we weren't idle when we were with you. Remember, he was a tent maker, Acts 18, verse 3. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in an undisciplined life or idleness, not busy at work, but are busy bodies. The Greek for that word is meddler. In such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with it, that he may be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So I read and uh, listened to three separate sermons on church discipline based on this passage. Again, I can see where it can be addressed because it says to stay away from these people. Um, and I don't want to address that here. I mean, my goodness, that's a whole class. Uh, we will probably do that when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where some of the very specific issues are being drawn up that the church has to address. There's a lot of theories of what Paul's writing about here. One of them is that these were people who thought that the end times were either very imminent, so they had sold everything and quit their jobs, and were sitting around and leeching off their friends and neighbors. And Paul's going, get to work, you sluggard. You know, this, no, don't do that. It's not right. That's a possibility. It's also very possible that that was just simply a way of the Greek life that there were those that simply were hanger-oners and they saw the fellowship in the church as a way to get free meals. That's possible too. 
um, I happened to sit on the board of Harvest Foundation with, uh, with Bob Moffat, and uh, one of our recent meetings, they brought in a uh, father and a son who work and help try to educate people in Nepal about work. Because in Nepal, in the Hindu culture, you have still have the caste system. And those who are at the upper level do not do menial tasks. That's left for the unwanted, the lowest caste. And so there was, there's this problem for the upper caste that the children don't work and they just leech off their parents. They don't learn a craft, they don't have no ability to do anything, and they become a drag on all society. And so this father and son have gone in to this, these communities, and the son, who is, he's now I think 20 years old, but he talks about washing dishes at Jack in the Box. And they're from an upper cast and he said it blows the minds away they're going you would do that why and the young man say well because it's the right thing to do work for a living you have to earn it if you don't work you don't eat and they're just oh that's so amazing and they're actually changing hearts and minds in the ball with this idea. And so I look at this passage and I'm thinking, was there some cultural things where they thought they could just kind of get by? And Paul is saying, no, work. In light of the entire passage that we have here, I think it's fascinating because you have all of 2 Thessalonians as this kind of this overarching theme of the second coming of Christ. It shows up constantly in this passage. And yet we have these variations over here with this idea of idleness. So I came across this little story in J. Vernon McGee's little um, thing. He said that we need to work while we wait for the coming of Christ. I thought, okay, you know. That's a nice sentiment. Looks good on a greeting card. Um, but this is what he told the story. A gardener for a large estate in northern Italy was conducting a visitor through the castle and the beautiful, well-groomed grounds. As the visitor had lunch with the gardener and his wife, he commended them for the beautiful way they were keeping the gardens. And he asked, by the way, when was the last time of the owner of the castle was here? And the gardener said, oh, about 10 years ago. The visitor asked, well then, why do you keep the gardens in such an immaculate and lovely manner? And he said, because I'm expecting him to return. He persisted, well, is he coming next week? The gardener replied, I don't know when he's coming, but I'm expecting him today. Although he didn't come that day, this gardener was living in light of the owner's imminent return. 
The gardener wasn't hanging over the gate watching down the road to see whether he was coming. He was in the garden, trimming, cutting, mowing, weeding, planting. He was busy. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says that we should be established in the work of the Lord in light of his coming. What an incredible picture. We should be tending that garden of our souls at every moment, expecting the Lord to show up at 10.30, and it's 10.29 right now. Like in the next 60 seconds, he's gonna show up. Are we ready? I hope so. Oh, he didn't show up? Okay. What about 10.31? Maybe, you know, someone didn't, you know, in fact, that clock's always five minutes fast. So, I mean, we never know, right? But do we work and think that way? Probably not in the front of our mind, but let's hope it's somewhere in the back of our mind and in the foundation of our heart. And he gives the final benediction. Now may the Lord of peace give himself, give himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And then he notarizes the entire letter. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness. Every time I, 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 in every letter of mine, it's the way I write. And that comes back to chapter 2, verse 2, where there had been a forgery going around claiming incorrect doctrine, incorrect teaching in the name of Paul, but wasn't written by him. And so this time he is signing the letter. One guy said, describes it this way, because you realize you have Paul, Silas, and Timothy are identified in the very first verse from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. He thinks, he wonders, if maybe Silas was the one who had written the majority of the letter as they're talking and discussing these thoughts and these ideas. And he's copying it down very carefully. Maybe he had the most legible handwriting. There are those of us you would not want to write a letter to someone. You would use your computer because you can't read your writing, right? So someone has written it very carefully, but at the very end, Paul says, okay, give me the pen. And then he scrawls in his manner. And this is from me. So you know everything that's in here. We have prayed over every word in this text for your benefit. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. For the powerful messages here, these, these seemingly innocuous verses that are just so full and so rich. Every time we open the word, we realize how much we don't know and how much we just miss in our cursory readings of these great passages like this. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the strength to stand firm we thank you, Lord, for giving us your Son on our behalf to cover our sins and then to break the bonds of death so that we have no fear. In everything and in all we do, we do it for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name.